Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 783 with Lee Mars and Justin Zorn. That's right. We got two people with one great idea how we can tap into more silence to get more energy, more clarity, more feel good flow in our lives. You'll learn one, the small but powerful ways we can get more rest every day. Two, how taking a hike can actually shorten your to-do list and three, how to resist the tug of your smartphone. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, please drop on by awesome at yourjob.com slash EP783 for those goodies. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, please check out some other tidbits like our gold nugget email list, where you can get the summary of the actionable wisdom that Justin and Lee shared, as well as unlocking the archive of all of these summary write-ups. There's 783 of them now. Wow, that's a lot. We call those the gold nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here is Lee and Justin's story. Lee Mars is a leadership coach and collaboration consultant specializing in work with scientists, engineers, and creatives. She's spent years working with the climate team at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and over a decade facilitating and advising a cross-sector team of chemists, advocates, government regulators, manufacturers, and retailers aiming to reduce toxic chemicals in our homes and environment. And Justin Talbot Zorn is an author and policymaker who has served as both a strategist and a meditation teacher in the U.S. Congress, a Harvard and Oxford-trained specialist in the economics and psychology of human thriving, Justin's writing on mindfulness and politics has been published in 12 languages, and his work has appeared in the Washington Post, The Atlantic, Harvard Business Review, Foreign Policy, and other publications. Big thanks to Lee and Justin for sharing their wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Justin and Lee. Lee and Justin, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Hey, thanks, Pete. Thanks for having us, Pete. Well, I'm excited to dig in. And, and first, I'd, I'd love to hear, as you were putting together Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise, were there any particularly surprising and fascinating discoveries that grabbed you? Mm. Well, I mean, I guess what we found is that when we started unpacking silence, that there was really a lot to it, much further than auditory decibel level silence, that we'll, when we're looking at silence today, we're looking at freedom from distraction 
from our screens, you know, the mass proliferation of information available. And also we're looking at silence internally in our minds. Just what does it mean to be quiet inside? So for us, the exploration of silence became much bigger than just that auditory starting point. And that's where things got rich. Uh-huh. We really did start thinking about the importance of auditory silence in the literal sense. We wrote this article for Harvard Business Review on this topic And it resonated with people. So we went out and started just following the cookie crumbs and interviewing people, neuroscientists, poets, activists, politicians, business people. You know, we ran the gamut. And as we asked people this question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known as a starting point? They gave us answers that often weren't auditorily quiet. So we started exploring this silence in the informational sense and even in the internal sense, like Lee mentioned. That's so funny because the first thing I thought of is, oh, I stepped inside of an anechoic chamber. That's right. Which they say can drive you insane, which I which I find intriguing. I plan to to visit one in the future. But that's intriguing. People's most silent moment didn't have much to do with the decibel levels, eh? At times. That was the big surprise. Yeah. That was the big surprise. And the funny thing is, even an anechoic chamber isn't really totally silent. We write in the book about a 20th century famous modernist composer named John Cage, who had a real love affair with silence. He wrote a piece of music that was famously just four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. And he, John Cage actually went into an anechoic chamber on the Harvard campus during World War II. And when he got there, he noticed there were two sounds. And he told the engineer running the anechoic chamber, this supposedly soundless booth, hey, this thing isn't silent as it's advertised. He said, I hear two sounds, one high pitch and one low pitch. And the engineer said, oh, no, it's working. He said the high pitch sound is your nervous system in operation. And the low pitch sound is your blood in circulation. (laughs) (laughs) So for us, we actually explore this that like, hey, Maybe there isn't such a thing as total perfect silence in the universe. But then as we explore the meaning of silence with all these diverse kinds of people, outstanding professionals in various fields, as well as the scientists, we find that silence does exist. It's just that it's a subjective experience in human consciousness. It's what we think of as the space where no one's making claims on your attention. It's pristine attention. Boy, just as you describe that, it feels so refreshing. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> Wouldn't it, though? Well, so so that's very interesting in terms of, hmm, as an exploration of, of a concept and how it affects us humans. Can you speak to to the benefits of silence, like some of the, the science behind it, and particularly as applicable to folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Well, first, we need to maybe take you to a a tour through the uh, damage of noise a little bit, maybe some definition, because that toll of noise is, is real and true. So first, it's about, of course, mitigating noise. So we look at the auditory effects on our bodies, on our ears. Of course, there's hearing loss, but there's far more than that. Hearing loss being a serious issue, leading to some isolation and all kinds of problems, doing all kinds of jobs, of course, but also we look at the impact, the toll on our ability to focus, the, how it impacts our nervous system, even how it's connected to all kinds of diseases like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, 
how it impacts our lack of sleep, our ability to sleep. And that lack of sleep, as you know, has a lot of downstream consequences to it. So there are vast physical, psychological mood and impacts to all this noise. And then we turn to silence and we look at actually this fascinating study out of Duke University that puts little mice in that anechoic chamber that we were just talking about and pipes in pup sounds of little mice, Mozart sonata in D, I believe it is, ambient noises and silence. And what they found was that silence had an incredibly beneficial impact on the mice. It led to the growth in their neurons in their brain that sus- there were sustained growth. They didn't die off that, that those neurons didn't die off right away. So the hypothesis was that this was a positive types of stress called eustress, that the mice were under something unusual that led them to kind of to grow into the direction of that silence, to listen in to the silence and actually build some capacity in their brain that they didn't have before. Those areas of the brain are also associated with, in the hippocampus are also associated with memory and things like that. So we became very interested in those effects. All right. Well, if we don't have access to an anechoic chamber handy, how do you recommend we go about pursuing and acquiring some of the silence? You know, for us, we didn't want to write about the kind of silence that's all about running away to an anechoic chamber or a sensory deprivation chamber or a monastery for that matter. We're interested in the kinds of silence, Pete, that we could find in this noisy, buzzing, singing, dancing world. And we think it's a, it's a good thing to be immersed in the noise of the modern world. And so we explore in this book how silence is always available. It's in the breath. It's in the moments in between words and conversations with friends. It's in that three minutes of stepping outside of the cubicle and feeling the rays of the sun. And we can even tune into silence just internally, even when the noise of our lives seems out of control. So this is a book about how we tune into silence in our own ways. Some really simple ways to do that are, for example, to just step outside and just listen to nothing in particular. Lee mentioned this Duke University medical school study about how the act of trying to hear in silence is actually physically edifying to the brain. It grows new neurons. So if we could take a moment, even in a busy day, you don't need to have a meditation practice or some kind of fancy knowledge of some kind of contemplative work to just step outside and just listen to the breeze, just listen to the the branches, listen to the rain. Even just listening to the birds, it doesn't need to be necessarily literal audio, auditory silence. This act of simply tuning into our hearing is healing and it's edifying and it's clarifying. So we can say, listen to the silence. Now, I guess I'm thinking about the noise. I do hear some birds. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm hearing some air conditioning. And is that, it's not nature. (laughs) Is that still? beneficial? The way we think of it is as long as it's not making claims on your attention. We're living in a world where we're constantly needing to have these mental reflexes going, where we're protecting our reputation or promoting a point of view. And in this book, we talk about taking a temporary break from one of life's most basic responsibilities, which is having to think of what to say. So these kinds of listening, it's better, of course, to listen to nature, we found through the science research, and we could get into that more. But this act of listening 
in a way that isn't thinking of what to say, isn't thinking about how do I compute this information, giving the mind a break to simply rest in the silence. All right. And when it comes to these breaks, is there a dosage that is optimal? Is it more is better? Or is there like, ooh, three minutes every 60 minutes or that is you could prescribe that'd be excellent? Yeah, that's a great question. And you did ask, is it beneficial? So I think what we're doing is really pointing the reader towards back towards their experience, back towards because silence and noise, is both are subjective. Actually, those are subjective experiences. It was with an interview, an interview with a biobehavior professor of biobehavioral health and medicine at Penn State, Joshua Smythe, when we were haranguing him for a good definition for internal silence, when in absolute exasperation, he said to us, Quiet is what people think quiet is. Okay. Yeah. And we would add quiet is what people feel and experience quiet to be. It could be quite surprising. So listening into the air conditioning, like you were saying, or listening to sounds of nature, simply turning away from your screen for a little bit or stepping outside in the rays of the sun. The trick here is as, as each of us t- to tune in to what is actually bringing us a sense of quiet, a sense of clarity a sense of relaxation, perhaps in the nervous system, whatever those signals are that we are relaxing, as well as really learning about the signals that we are agitated, we have had too much noise, we are saturated, we're unable to focus to to get clear on what those signals are in each of us. So there is no great perfect prescription for any for all people. There's no one size fits all here, which is one of the reasons why I think we think of this as a non-meditator's guide to getting beyond the noise, because meditation often is kind of proposed as something that will work for all. But as many of your listeners have probably experienced, even if we've had a short stint of being great with meditation, and we, Justin and I, have had some good stints with meditation, even teaching it in U.S. Congress in Justin's case. But that's not always the best way to quiet. So the real key here is what is your way to quiet? And what is the type of noise that's polluting your soundscape? What is the quiet that gets you out of that and really getting tuned into that? And so in the book, you outline uh, 33 different ways to to find silence. Can you share, you shared a few. Can you share a couple more that really seem to be powerful for folks? Sure. And one way we describe the beginning of these 33 ways to silence, which span individual practices as well as families, workplaces, communities, and broader society, one way we start to frame them, which will be, uh, I think, particularly relevant to listeners thinking about how to be awesome at your job, is uh, as the healthy successor to the smoke break, Lee makes a confession that she used to smoke in the book. And the confession isn't so much that she used to smoke, it's that she loved it. She loved the experience of having nothing to do for this period of time in her day. She would step outside of the office, particularly when she was doing really difficult work, crisis work around domestic violence and other difficult issues. She would step outside and have this time of total respite when she didn't have to think of anything, didn't have to do anything. And of course, it's a wonderful thing that she quit and wasn't going to have it any other way. It's a wonderful thing that anyone quits smoking tobacco. But the question is, what's going to replace those little pockets of silence in our days? So we examine that question because there's some research from researchers in Scotland found that often workers, particularly in high-stress industries, often have to 
at least pretend they smoke because that's the only way they could get a break. <laughs> so how can we shift our cultural norms in workplaces so that it's possible to, to take these breaks in silence that we're describing? So some of the ways we describe this is, you know, as I mentioned, this practice of simply stopping and listening, which is an ancient practice from India called Nada Yoga, the yoga of sound. And as we mentioned, there's this research that indicates it's edifying for the brain. But one way to do this is to simply listen to the ringing in your own ears. We interview folks in the book who talk about the science of how this works. Simply tuning in and listening can actually diminish that ringing in your ears if you're actually paying attention to it. I don't know if I've ever, it's quite rare that I've ever noticed the ringing in my own ears. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> Maybe you don't have any. <laughs> well, I guess there's a follow-up. It's like, do we all have that and how much? Yeah, it's pretty common, it, especially in that total silence or that near total silence. As we said, there may not be such a thing as total silence, which is why some people don't find auditory quiet that relaxing, you know, if they're not able to, you know, if or if that's too aggravating. So again, we're finding what brings us quiet. For example, finding quiet might be, I've been strapped to my desk for, you know, several hours on Zoom meetings and whatever. I'm going to put on a song and I'm going to dance like a madwoman for three minutes, which is not quiet, but will empty my brain of all those unhelpful thoughts, all the chatter, all the worry, all the, just the lack of focus that I'm, that I'm about to get into if I haven't already gotten into that. Because we know about attention. We don't have limited, un unlimited attention, rather. We can't go on and drive and work and work without some cost to the quality of our attention. So one big idea is really how we find beyond these just little successors, healthy successors to the smoke break, which we could get into some more of those. But one big idea is how we come into moments of truly pristine attention, what we call these moments of rapturous silence, where the kind of silence that can actually change the way we perceive the world. So we, we look, for example, in the book at a practice called Take Your To-Do List for a Hike, which was inspired by a legendary acoustic ecologist named Gordon Hempton, who every once in a while will take a look at his to-do list and say when it gets too long, he'll drive out somewhere remote, often to the rainforest, the whole rainforest on Olympia National Park near Seattle, and he'll hike for a day once he gets there. And once he finds that he's really tuned into the silence of nature, he's gotten beyond all that noise and distraction that's present for him at his desk. He takes his to-do list, which he's printed out, out of his pocket. And he crosses out everything that's not really necessary. And once he gets to that vantage point, you know, that's a day's travel away from the hustle and bustle. He notices how the things that he thought were important weren't really so important. And he says the answers are in the silence. Mm -hmm. He adds that when he does do something like that, take a day or a half a day off of work to, to take his to-do list for a hike that he often comes back to his office again with about five months less work on his plate <laughs> because there's a whole lot that feels important when he's sitting there strapped to the desk, but out in nature with more expansive views and more expansive, you know, and more expansive mind, he has a different perspective on that. That's cool. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about the healthy successor to the smoke break and how many of us, when we have such an opportunity, 
when in which there's there's nothing external claiming our attention, we just short circuit it in terms of like the the phone can be the ubiquitous. I've heard it called a, a digital pacifier in terms of <laughs> I am I'm a little bit bored or uncomfortable, and so it's just like almost like reflex or, or oh, so yeah. habituated it just out it goes and and there i am on, on social media or news or whatever so and it can even feel for some uncomfortable that it's like ah, i need to do something and here it is and, and and this will be entertaining or or in some way pacifying so how do we deal with our own selves in the midst of this yeah, we spend a lot of time looking at what is within our sphere of control. And that's one that we argue is within our sphere of control. We can certainly get into feedback loops where it feels like maybe we're hustling and bustling, we're mistaking busyness for productivity, we're mistaking stress for aliveness. You know, we can kind of get in these feedback loops of activity. But if we can actually take those moments as little gifts of silence. So so let's just say you're stuck in traffic or you're stuck in a long line. And rather than grab for your phone immediately to fill with any of those things, you know, a podcast, checking the news, checking in on your email, et cetera, that you actually take that, even if it was unplanned or especially if it was unplanned, as a moment to tune in to silence. We talked with a neuroscientist named Judson Brewer, who's been a pioneer in the use of fMRI studies of meditators and studying the brains of meditators. And he looks at how people's experience of noise in the consciousness often corresponds to a feeling of contractedness, contractedness in the body, contractedness in the mind. It's a subjective state. It's a feeling but it often contra- it often corresponds to a kind of feeling of being hunched over your phone, reading the news, feeling that stress of that. And Dr. Brewer tells us that there's an experience in the consciousness people describe that corresponds to what he calls silence in the mind, this internal experience of silence in his studies with fMRIs and other imaging machinery. And he tells us that that experience of silence corresponds to this state that he calls expansion. That's the kind of common denominator to what people are feeling. And this is often also the kind of common denominator to where good creative ideas emerge when we're out of that state of contractedness, that hunched over the phone, doom scrolling or whatever you might might be doing, versus being outside, being receptive, like how many of the good ideas we often have happen in the shower. Again, when there's nothing making claims on our consciousness, nothing making claims on our attention. So Lee mentioned this challenge that in our society these days, we often mistake stress for aliveness. In our workplaces, we often mistake this feeling of constant doing, constant exertion for the feeling of being productive and effective. But it's often not in those spaces of contraction, but in these spaces of expansion where the best ideas, the profoundly generative ideas emerge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's cool. And that, that totally resonates. And did I hear that Aaron Sorkin put a, a shower in his office in order to take more showers <laughs> and have more, more great ideas? <laughs> Which is funny, and I guess that's that's one approach in terms of forcing it. Like, they're, oh, can't do much else. You're naked with water on you. Yeah, that's a healthy successor to a smoke break if there ever was one. Oh, certainly. <laughs> yeah. Certainly. Yeah. So let's just zoom right in. Like, okay, someone's like, oh, I like what you're saying, Lee and Justin. That's really cool. And so I go ahead and I 
retreat, whatever that means, you know, taking a step outside or whatever. And then I feel the urge, the tug to pull out the phone. What is the optimal, if we're seeking silence, response to ourselves? Because I imagine you could, you could, you could give in, you could harshly say no. Or how do you think about like those moments and reasserting what you're going for? Because in some ways, expansiveness, like as, as I think about that, that sensation, that vibe is like the opposite of constrictedness. And in some ways it feels constricting to engage in self-denial. Like I want to do this. No. And and Mm -hmm. then in so doing, there's a bit of a a constricting feeling. So I'm all tied up in knots here. What what do we do? Mm -hmm. It's a really good question. We have a chapter of the book called Why Silence is Scary. And, you know, at one level, we're looking in the big picture what it's like for people to go on extremely long, silent retreats or someone to go on a, you know, just away from civilization for a while. And what that brings up in the consciousness, because that's extremely scary. It's almost like taking it to its the furthest extent of that, that persistent nag of picking up the phone that you're talking about. So we explore that dynamic. But we found a study from the University of Virginia from 2014, where a uh, social psychologist left mostly undergraduate students in a sparse room with no cell phones or no entertainment for 15 minutes. And Wilson, this, this professor, gave the participants a choice. They could either sit in silence without their phones alone, or they could push a button that would administer a painful electric shock. And initially, the participants had all said that they would pay money to avoid this painful electric shock. But in the end, 67% of the men and 25% of the women actually chose to shock themselves rather than sit alone without their phones in silence. And that was 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question about what, what do we actually do when, when confronting this, you know, one, one big theme we explore in the book is the perennial wisdom of know thyself. Understand that we, in this day and age, are hardwired to seek stimulation, to seek sound and stimulus. And it is a skill to cultivate, to get comfortable with silence. Mm -hmm. We also talk about a convenience addiction that we have, and Cal Newport uh, brings this to our attention in some of his work, deep work in digital minimalism, where we tend to think about the gains of whatever it is, let's say a group email where infinite numbers of people are listed and included, but we don't think of the cost. So we're consistently minimizing the cost of this constant grabbing for more input, more attention, more outreach, constant connectivity without looking at those costs there to our work, to the quality of our work, to the quality of our consciousness. Mm-hmm. So well, there's, there's a little bit of patience and gentleness with yourself, like, yep, for this sure. is normal. You're not messed up. <laughs> yeah. This is a, a natural response to those who are not yet practiced and skilled with, with doing this. And so if the thought emerges, I want to see what's on, on Instagram right now. How do you recommend responding to that thought? Even just to pause a beat before jumping right in and to do a little bit of a cost benefit analysis in that moment, a little bit of an assessment in terms of where that's coming from. If if it's coming from that grabby, needy, constricted place, or if it's because you really want to check in with your network, there can be, we allot ourselves that time all the time to really figure out where is it coming from? Where's that urge coming from? And then we can do that as 
teams and as in par- as partners, as work partners, like Justin and I do all the time as well, too, to really just look at what's our default here, to examine the default that's happening in our on our teams and in our organizations. Should we always be meeting? Should we meet back to back all the time? Should we assume constant connectivity? Those kinds of things, like what are the costs of that? And how can we support each other to create a culture that honors silence? You know, one thing that comes up for me with that question too, Pete, and what Lee is saying about questioning our defaults and building these cultures, is this word appreciation. Through the stories in this book, we explore why silence is something worth valuing in a world of constant sound and stimulation and entertainment. And if we can appreciate these spaces of silence in our lives, we start to, you know, not just question our defaults and say, well, I need to put my phone away more and I need to just deal with that kind of impulse. It's something more than that. It's flipping the script. So we're able to see opportunities for rest and healing and renewal within the silence, which is what the science shows and what we also explore in the book through stories. One big theme in the book that we explore is a traditional Japanese aesthetic concept, an idea called ma. And the idea of ma, this word ma, means the space in between. Some people call it the open space, the negative space. We think of ma as pure potentiality. So ma is the space in between the words we're saying to each other right now. It's the space between notes in music, It's the space, the empty space in artwork or in Japanese traditional ikebana flower arranging. This word ma actually means sunlight pouring forth through the gate of a temple. So it's this pure potentiality that exists in the in-between spaces in what's not spoken. So we look in the book, what would it mean to appreciate ma in our lives? We have a section of one chapter called Ma on the Job which is we explore how we could bring more silence, for example, into organizational brainstorming, or how we can bring more ma into our workday, for example, in between meetings, or in between any kind of task or activity, stopping and taking some breaths, stopping to savor a glass of water, or within a group, having some moment of quiet time to integrate what it is that you've been talking about. And at the end of the book, we even explore Ma Goes to Washington, what it would look like to bring all of these reverence for the open space to society as a whole. But the basic idea is something that we could bring into our work lives to find more rest and renewal and more inspiration in the moment-to-moment conduct. It's fascinating, Justin, is just as you're speaking, you talked about Ma, and I was pointing my attention toward the gaps or pauses between your words and sentences. And just in doing so, my brain felt less fatigued. And yet, I still heard and understood and internalized what you said. What's that about? Hmm. That's a great question. I think it's about better listening, for starters, I think. It's just a better quality of listening. Instead of being poised, perhaps with the internal on the ready of how we're going to respond and then therefore not really listening. So I feel like the quality you're talking about in part, a quality of listening, as well as just your attention relaxing. I think that's about just finding that silence and what it does to your consciousness. In that case, it's a a thing that supported you 
and relaxing, which is what it's all about. It's about experimenting. This whole book is about experimenting and finding our way to quiet. So I don't know the exact answer of why you, Pete, doing that Mm -hmm. practice, what was happening in your brain that we could put you up to all kinds of circuitry. But what matters is that it did. And what matters is that you might be on to a new way to listening that brings you some quiet. And that's what this book is all about. Florence Nightingale, about 150 years ago, intuited that noise in the consciousness, too much sound and stimulus, just at the auditory level, drives the fight or flight response. It is a driver of stress. And this is why she said that unnecessary noise is the most cruel absence of care that could be inflicted on a person sick or well. And a lot of the recent research in neuroscience and various different disciplines of physical sciences of physiology are discovering that Florence Nightingale was right about this that she perceived 150 years ago or so. So even if the auditory decibels are the same level, there's something to be said of where we put our attention. If we can put our attention on the empty spaces, as you're talking about, Pete, and we're tuning into the silence, then there's this opportunity we find through our interviews with people in this book to help reset the nervous system, to get beyond that fight or flight. One thing we explore in the book is it's not just about the auditory decibels, or it's not even just about the amount of information and sound and stimulus you have in your life. It's about how deeply you can go into the silence when it appears, even if it's just for two seconds, even if it's for less than a second, like those moments of silence between words. How deeply can you go into the silence in this noisy world? That's fun. Well, Lee, you mentioned hooking me up to circuitry, which uh, I'm I'm game for if anyone happens to have the equipment. (laughs) (laughs) It's fascinating, yeah, to do that, yeah. I'm looking over at my Muse brain sensing headband in the corner there, and I'm curious, are there any particular tools or things that can be handy here. I mean, we've talked about it's not just about the decibel levels. So, you know, earplugs and noise canceling headphones, I mean, have something to offer, but it's certainly not the whole story that we're unpacking here. Anything else that is useful for folks to pick up as we're pursuing this journey? Well, actually, I'll say this is actually another aspect of surprise, perhaps, is we we expected to reach out to neuroscientists and for them to have all sorts of concrete, like, here's where, here's what's happening in the brain, and we know this, and we'll see this. But actually, neuroscientists like Adam Ghazali at the University of San Francisco were, were and really every neuroscientist we spoke with, were very humble about what they were able to claim, that they were actually... They said, you know, we use all this uh, equipment, fMRIs, to be just an example of one. But there are times when someone's sitting there and they'll say, well, what just happened? And something major registered on the machinery. And they say, well, nothing, nothing happened at all. Or the participant will have some great, brilliant insight and it won't register on the machinery. So there's still a lot we don't know, Mm. but there's a lot we're learning about some commonalities between mental states. And and we haven't mentioned things like states of flow, which can, of course, happen when we're really getting involved and enjoying work states. Maybe we're really getting into a project. So look, really observing your own way with what is bringing you into that place of focus where you're challenged at an appropriate point, but not so much that it's stressful. And it's also challenging enough that you're not bored. So that sweet spot 
where you lose a sense of reflective self-consciousness as Mihai Csikszentmihalyi puts it. So there's something in there about really getting attuned to when are you losing that sense of self, the not so helpful part, <laughs> sense of self, where you're talking to yourself about yourself, whether you're feeling distracted or there's a lot of unhelpful chatter. I noticed you had Ethan Cross on before. He has a great work, great research on those unhelpful, intrusive thoughts and ruminating. And so part of what we're looking at is really, it's kind of back to us. We wanted to avoid pointing towards gadgetry and pointing towards apps and things, but there, those can be helpful. Again, it's up to us to really find out what is really working, what's helping us find our flow, keep our focus, or clear the slate, or invite in novel thinking and creative thinking versus what is just cluttering our brains. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we hear about some of your favorite things? You mentioned gadgetry, like noise-canceling headphones, Pete, and we have explored that a little bit. But one thing that's come up for us in this book is that we've avoided wanting to add more technology, you know, more complicated kinds of solutions, especially expensive kinds of solutions. We want to make this as accessible as possible, as simple as possible. So we look at this simplicity of, of these practices that we've talked about, that healthy successor to the smoke break, accepting these little gifts of silence when they arise in our lives. Maybe if it's possible, taking a little bit of time not talking. Gandhi every week spent his Monday not speaking. He would sometimes attend meetings. He would sometimes see visitors, but he wouldn't speak a word. And it was about resting this mental reflex of constantly needing to think of what to say, constantly needing to add to the conversation. And he found that this was an important way to discern the truth. So these ways to finding silence are often, even in this world of so much noise, they're really simple. Oftentimes we find they're about simple conversations with other people. We wrote recently a, a new piece for Harvard Business Review on this. And we talk about how during the drafting of the U.S. Constitution, the delegates there in Philadelphia had a giant mound of dirt erected outside Constitution Hall. And that was because they wanted to have pristine, silent attention to be able to do their work. Even if they were debating and even yelling at each other sometimes, they wanted a container where there wasn't outside noise and distraction coming in. So we explore how that was the result of obviously not a fancy technology, but just a simple conversation that could lead to a shared norm around the value of quiet attention. And this book is really about how do we make these shifts in our own lives like Gandhi or as a group in a workplace like those delegates writing the U.S. Constitution all those years ago. All right. Thank you. Well, now we hear some favorite quotes. Well, we turn to Viktor Frankl. He has, a, at least this is a quote often attributed to him, psychologist and Holocaust survivor. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And for us, this quote really gets to the essence of what we mean by silence, not just the auditory silence, the informational and the internal. When we find this space that Frankel's talking about, this is the deep, pristine attention that we're talking about is this golden silence. And there's choice here. It's where we find our agency. All right. In favor book? Hmm. So many, but uh, just maybe in relation to this conversation, chatter, 
the voices in our head, why it matters and how to harness it by Ethan Cross, because that really put, but that happened actually, that book came out while we were working on this. And he really took the conversation of that internal soundscape to a new level into the mainstream. And we're so appreciative of that. And that one little piece that he pulled out with uh, the fact that we have 320 some State of the Union addresses going through our minds every day, uh, that's compressed speech, really, really helped us with uh, understanding how this internal chatter is noise in many cases. Relevant to this conversation, one book that was coming up for us that we didn't mention in our book, but mentioned in a, in a recent article, is the work of Hal Gregerson, a uh, longtime MIT scholar. His book, Questions Are the Answer, is really about the notion that in-group decision-making, the answers come through cultivating open space, not by trying to perform or not always by even presenting the best data, but by cultivating the space where we could be together in a question contemplating inside the inquiry. And this book is very much about how we curate and cultivate these kinds of spaces. Mm-hmm. And a favorite tool? We'll highlight the take your to-do list for a hike. I also like to take uh, clients on the early side of brainstorming for a hike. So that that's the space that we're, we're thinking about this project from, not strapped to a desk. All right. And is there a, a key nugget that you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you often. Hmm. I would say this that I mentioned earlier about an invitation to take a temporary break from one of life's most basic responsibilities, which is having to think of what to say. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? So as you might imagine, we're not really big on social media with a with mm-hmm. a platform like Silence being our thing, but you can find us at our website, astreastrategies.com, and that's A-S-T-R-E-A strategies.com. You can contact us through the website. You know, Lee, when you said that, that reminds me of my favorite <laughs> tweet of all time, which is, I read it and I just tickled me so much. It said, the tweet read, holding my child and just so present in this moment. that is the best we'll put that as our new favorite quote (laughs) that is like that is a really Mm. high level way of of throwing some shade on twitter (laughs) (laughs) and you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs Yeah, I would say, well, I'll say the first half is really to notice noise, notice the auditory, informational, and internal noise that is getting in the way of you being awesome at your job, to really take note of it and notice how to mitigate those things. And the second part, I'll let Justin take on. The second part, the flip side of that is tuning into silence. As I mentioned, noticing these, or even these small pockets of silence exist in our life. Maybe it's like we talked about in between the words. Maybe it's just taking that moment to step outside of the office and connect to the silence that's around us and to feel the abundance that's available in this silence, to feel the abundance of calm and peace that we could tune into, even when the world seems crazy, even when our lives seem crazy, tuning into this silence, finding more energy, clarity, and focus within it. Especially when we go off as teams to retreat, to refuel, or to generate some ideas and strategies in the future to just try not to stuff all that time with content or data 
or activities to really build in some silence and some quiet to enjoy together as well as some recreation and fun. All right. Lee, Justin, it's been a treat. I wish you much great silence. Thank you. You too, Pete. Thank you, Pete. I really dug Justin and Lee's take on the healthy successor to the smoke break, because if you think about it, you take a short break in the middle of the day to do something to change your mental state in a way that provides both short-term and ideally long-term benefits at the same time. I've had a fun time brainstorming and enjoying some of these items, and one theme that has come up is savoring. Justin mentioned savoring a glass of water, and there's so many things you can savor. Just a deep breath some sunshine, washing your hands, tasty bite of lunch instead of looking at the phone or the screen at the same time, delicious snacks, a stretch that hits just the right spot, a good pair of slippers, the list goes on and on. But the savoring has been a theme that helps me enjoy the silence and the rejuvenation. So maybe that's a theme for you too. Explore and have some fun with it. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items that we've mentioned are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP783. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.